This podcast is part of the Telerik Developer Network. Telerik by Progress. Hello and welcome to Eat Sleep Code, the official Telerik podcast. I'm your host, Ed Charbonneau, and with me today is my co-host, Brian Rinaldi. Hey, Brian. Hey, Ed. And also joining us is Todd Motto. Hello. How you doing, Todd? Very well. And you? Great. Uh, so this is another episode of the Telerik Developer Digest. So this is a show we do every other week where we take articles that are part of our newsletter and break it down and share our point of view. And this week we had uh, an article by Todd, so I thought it'd be uh, nice to have Todd on so he could talk about uh, a project that he's working on. Uh, so we'll go ahead and start things off with uh, NG Migrate. So Todd, um, you've been working on this little side project called NG Migrate. Uh, why don't you give a, give us a little inf- info about it? Tell us what it is and, and what it is you're working on. Give you a teaser. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so we've been working on NG Migrate for about a month and a half, two months, I think. Um, sort of intermittently amongst other things. So ng-migrate, you can visit uh, ngmigrate.telerik.com. It's a, a work in progress. So it's an Angular 1 to Angular 2 migration guide. You can essentially, if you've got uh, some Angular 1 experience, you can, for, for, for instance, um, you know how to do filters. And now in Angular 2, they're called pipes. So we're working on a bunch of uh, resources, so we're calling them them guides instead of articles. So we're working on uh, a bunch of guides which break down all these little individual concepts and then essentially show you how to do them in Angular One. So then it obviously you can familiarize yourself, and then it essentially tells you what they're called, which in this case is pipes in Angular Two, um, and they show you essentially how to migrate the first piece of code across. To which is the Angular One code, uh, to the second piece of code, which is uh, Angular Two. So it's it's like a huge walkthrough guide, um, and it's 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 quite in depth. Angular Angular One is extremely big, uh, Angular Two is extremely big as well. So it's uh, we're working on it as quickly as we can to get as, as much content up as possible. So how much of Angular One translates into something in Angu- Angular Two? Is there a lot of things that are like kind of one-to-one comparisons, even though they're they're not the same, they're similar, or is it completely different? How how difficult has this been? Um, when you when you compare like feature for feature, it's it's quite simple to do. So um, Angular one point five introduced what we call the the component method, which is kind of a a wrapper for directives. So if you want to build a component with a template and a controller. You essentially use dot component, so this maps pretty much directly across to Angular two components now. So it's not just us that's actually providing some kind of migration. The um, uh, the Angular one team are actually trying to align Angular uh, one with with two. So the component method dropped uh, end of last year, and it's been um, there's a lot of features that have been added to it since. Um, lifecycle hooks, which are in Angular 2, uh, one-way data flow, which is in Angular 2. So all of these things are trying to bridge the gap. So 
all of our migration guides focus on the latest Angular. So we, we don't kind of go back, otherwise it's, uh, it, it'll be a longer process. So as long as people are familiar with the latest technologies um, in Angular, then, then it will suit them really well. Uh, a lot of it's quite similar. It, I think the Angular team just wanted to, to break away from the current the digest cycle, which is how Angular 1 works and does dirty checking, etc., to something more sort of scalable when they've split the, 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 the actual core uh, DOM renderer out so you can render it on the server, in a web worker, and various other places if you have some kind of compiler, like native script, obviously. Um, so that gives you the ability to create native web applications, but using Angular 2, which is really handy. Um, so yeah, it's a lot of it's feature parity. There was uh, a few things that they dropped. So in Angular 1, we had this concept of Angular modules. So until uh, last week, where um, the release candidate 5 for Angular 2 dropped, we didn't have modules in Angular 2, but now there's actually modules in Angular 2, so we can now write a much better guide on here's an Angular module in Angular 1, and then here's an Angular module in Angular 2. So really, they're not they're not too different um, architecturally. They force a lot more design on you. Um, Angular one, I think you could just whip up anything and just start coding. Whereas Angular two forces you to create components and injectables and actually enforce a proper structure. So the learning curve is mainly from an architectural side um, and introducing things like uh, ngrx for um, like a Redux approach and RxJS for observables. So these are kind of new technologies that are uh, integrated or can be integrated with Angular 2. It's hey, Todd, do, where do you get a sense that, uh, that the community is in general in this transition? Like how do you have a sense of, of where most people are in trying to make the transition from 1 to 2? It's really difficult to say. Um, I, f I try and follow a lot of the Angular 1 community um, and the Angular 2 community. Obviously, we're, we're still part of the, in, in quotes, Angular community, but there has been some kind of recent divide where there is a, a large amount of people who are on Angular 1 still and will continue to do so for many years. And then there's also the Angular 2 folks who uh, tend to be like the bleeding edge guys or girls. Um, who will then start adopting this new technology and follow all the, the, the updates that Angular 2 are making. Um, a lot of people are kind of struggling with some things, mainly like tooling and TypeScript and these kind of things. Um, but I think once they're over that hurdle it, and can actually start to think about applications in like a component architecture way, then things will start to make sense. Um, it's a little bit more difficult to learn than Angular 1. So it'll be interesting to see community like adoption and, and where the Angular 1 developers go from here. Yeah, and I'm, I'm curious as well to see, because I know I've been in these kind of transitions uh, over the course of my career where even in the same technology, something dra dramatically changed to the point where you had to rethink, okay, do we is it actually worth taking this existing project and porting it all over because it would actually be a, a really huge undertaking or do we just let it ride on the existing technology and, and you know for as long as we can I mean do you get a sense that people 
are, are thinking they're going to migrate their apps in general, or is, are they kind of uh, on the fence about whether they actually ever move their existing app? Yeah, I think people will upgrade or migrate. Um, it, it obviously depends on the team, the person, how experienced they are as a developer. Like if you've got five, ten years experience as a JavaScript developer or, um, or whichever like backend technologies, then you'll then you'll pick up TypeScript and Angular two much faster than let's say a jQuery HTML CSS kind of developer purely front end who doesn't understand like how to break things down into components, which is where like I think a lot of Angular one became popular because you don't need to be a software engineer to build an app with with Angular 1, whereas Angular 2 is very structured, it's very software engineer focused, so I think it may, you, you will lose some people to it, and I'd, obviously Angular 1 will keep going. Um, there's been talks yeah. of Angular 1.6 and 1.7, so who knows where uh, the end will be for, for Angular 1, but I think it will be many, many years away yet, um, and I, I think it's still growing. Um, which is which is also good to see um, that people are joining the Angular community. Yeah, I think it's worth mentioning too that uh, when you're in the migration phase, you can use both Angular one and two in the same project without breaking anything. Yeah, there's a project um, you can you can basically create like a an upgrade adapter, uh, ng forward, which will allow you to run Angular 1 and Angular 2 simultaneously in the same app, and then you can slowly start to upgrade your application. Now, the only problem with this is, is that you need to have a component-based app, or ideally you should have a component-based app. So, for instance, if you've got a legacy app on Angular 1.2, which I know a lot of folks do have, um, that's not going to be possible. So. And that, especially with Angular 1.3 and 1.4, these are still on introducing one-way data flow, uh, lifecycle hooks, and all the things that will make migrations easier. Um, so if you, for instance, started a new project today that was three months worth of work, you would build that using components uh, in Angular 1.5, and then build it in a way, like using ES6 or even TypeScript, that in six months' time, when the product's matured slightly and Angular 2's matured slightly, uh, there's thousands of Stack Overflow answers that you can use to your disposal to help you uh, develop. Then, then it might make sense to actually start refactoring that code base. And you can either do it, um, as you said, using like an upgrade adapter, or you could actually use like the the Big Bang method, where you could rewrite the whole thing, or you could do it like module by module. So, let's assume you have three pages or views. You could rewrite the first page in Angular 2 and then redirect to the Angular 1 app after you've left that page and then slowly refactor like this. So there's a couple of different approaches, uh, each have their own ups and downs, so um, there is no silver bullet answer, it's, it's, up to, it's up to the developer and the teams. Now Todd, you mentioned this is a work in progress, so what is the best way uh, for somebody to find out when uh, the project has been updated or a new guide has come out? Yeah, so we're working on um, a better way to sort of raise awareness for when uh, new articles and things come out. So when a new guide is published, uh, we're going to be sending out some more emails. Um, we're working on sort of the, the infrastructure piece behind that at the moment. Um, 
because we don't want to send out like hideous plain text emails or anything like this. We want to actually brand it and make it look a bit more professional. But if you hit up the ngmigrate.telerec.com, uh, you can scroll to the bottom of the page and in the footer we've got a an email capture. Uh, we, we're using MailChimp at the moment, but we're going to migrate it to something else. Um, so you can drop in your email address in there and when we ping out uh, new guides, uh, you'll get an automated email, which will be really handy. Um, so yeah, that's probably the best way. Uh, and follow me on Twitter as well because I, I post them all. <laughs> and and uh, you know, I know you've done a lot of uh, uh, Angular training courses and uh, a lot of great articles for TDN. So it's great to see a, a nice resource like this being built to help people migrate from you know Angular one to Angular two. I think it'll be a a good resource for the community. Yeah, I'm yeah a lot so. of great articles for TDN, man. You're overstating it. <laughs> <laughs> Hundreds. <laughs> yeah, I'm just yeah. giving you a hard time. Oh, as, a, as always. So, um, but yeah, I'm hoping NG Migrate. I mean, in the first week that we launched NG Migrate, and bear in mind that I spent about a month or so sort of building the first guy. Um, the actual website so I had to design the whole site and make it actually look nice because developers like things that look pretty um, so I think we got the the brand in and that kind of thing straight um, and then we wrote a couple of sort of um, MVP guides where we say okay we're gonna launch with three guides or four guides um, and even with three guides that had about 10,000 hits in a in seven days so I think there's definitely feedback there that suggests that it's it's needed so and i'm i'm happy that it's me who's uh creating uh most of the content and um and also if um anybody listening um has an idea for a migration guide if you jump on the website you can hit contribute uh, which will take you to the open source uh code for the actual website itself so we have a bunch of issues and you can actually either create a new issue and say I would like a migration guide for a sync pipes or something. Um, or if you've just learned something in Angular 2, so say you've learned how to do an async pipe and want to get your name out there or want to help out with a guide, you can actually um, work with us and we're happy to accept um, some contributions, um, big or small. So that is actually an excellent segue to the next article we're going to talk about. Um, we had uh, one of our teammates, uh, TJ Vantel, wrote a really in-depth piece on how to contribute successfully to large open source projects. Mm -hmm. And uh, TJ explains um, you know, how you get into an open source project and don't come off uh, sounding like a pompous jerk. <laughs> and um, he took an interesting approach to the article, which I didn't expect from TJ. And he compares uh, getting into an open source project like your first day in prison. Um, so <laughs> he says, you know, the first day in prison, you go uh, take a swing at the largest guy in the room and try to establish some sort of dominance. And that's like not what you want to do if you're contributing to an open source project. And uh, he's got some really great tips in there. Was uh, he speaking so from experience? Would... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, 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 this is apparently based on his, his time in prison. 
It's a true story. Yeah. <laughs> it's an autobiography of uh, TJ. Yeah. Uh, you know, TJ never, never uh, lacks a surprise. Uh, we, we found out he's got some unique uh, dance, dance revolution talents oh, yes. uh, at one of our meetings. World so, record. Um, <laughs> world record holder. Uh, so it wouldn't, it wouldn't, um, surprise me if there were other things we don't know about TJ. Mm. Yeah. But I thought this was good because, um, I do think a lot of times people just jump in and, and they want to contribute, but they, they don't take it in, in steps. They don't start by just helping out on documentation or, or answering questions on stack overflow and things like that before, you know, they just look at, at issues and they're like, oh, I'm going to fix this big issue. Um, but as TJ points out, if it was, if these things were easy to fix, it would be fixed, right? Um, or easy or easy feature to add, it would be added for the most part um, by the people who are running this project. And it's, it's better to work your way up to that point and establish some level of trust with the, with the project leaders than to just, you know, jump all the way in. Um, you may end up just wasting a lot of your time or, you know, you don't know exactly what's going on behind the scenes. Maybe they're already working on this feature or somebody, you know, there's a reason why they're holding it. Uh, things like that. Yeah. You certainly don't want to jump into the car and grab the steering wheel, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So, um, all of us have been doing professional development for a while. So have you guys worked on any open source projects and contributed? Um, I, I had one years ago that was actually widely used. It was back when, you know, code generators were still considered, uh, an interesting tool. I, I had a code generator that was very popular. Um, I never, personally, I was never good at handling contributions. So this was my project. And, and while I had a lot of people who wanted to contribute, um, it was harder. I have a. I'm not very good at managing that aspect of it. I, I actually find that difficult to manage. Um, yeah, I think TJ covered something in the article that that was pretty helpful uh, to not only people that want to contribute, but to people that have an open source project and they'd like to receive contributions. And that was to look at uh, the project and see if there's a guide mm -hmm. on on submitting. Um, content to the project. So that's a good thing for people that have open source projects to do is actually say, okay, if you're going to submit, here's how you do it. You know, fork the repository, create a branch with a, you know, a certain prefix on it. And here's the steps that you need to follow to build it. And then, you know, uh, submit the pull request and, and then we'll take a look at it. So it's not just, you know, random people sending you emails with zip files or, or submitting pull requests on the main branch or things like that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That's one of the things that I've, um, cause we launched the engine migrate. Um, and then I think it was about a week or two ago. Um, one of the, it's, it's a new feature in GitHub, but it's quite old if that makes sense. Uh, so it's one of the newest features, uh, that GitHub is if you create a contributing dot markdown file in the root of the project, when you create a new issue, it will actually say, please read the contributing guidelines. So this helps out a little bit. Um, and we've set this up for uh, ng-migrate. So if anyone is interested, 
go on to the, the repo, check out the contributing section. It's quite brief, um, and we're friendly, we're a friendly bunch. So, yeah, even a, even a brief, you know, piece like that is very helpful. Uh, one of the projects that I contributed contributed to was uh, Foundation from Zurb, and uh, they've always had a little contributors guide in there. Uh, project and it was you know easy to follow it was like create this branch and then submit us a pull request and we'll take a look at it so uh, that was how I interacted with them and uh, it worked out well so it's a great article by TJ there's a lot of good little bits in there for uh, like I said not only if you're contributing but if you want to launch a successful open source project uh, there's some stuff in there that could help you in there as well so if you get a chance, uh, go to developer.telerik.com, check that one out. Uh, the next uh, article that we uh, have to talk about is by Cody Lindley. Um, he's got an article that's using Kendo UI for jQuery in a React app. So he's talking about taking uh, the existing Kendo UI framework uh, that uses jQuery uh, as its main dependency and kind of wrapping that to where it's useful in a React application. So this isn't something I have a ton of experience with. Um, I, I read the article, so I kind of have a gist of uh, what he's talking about. Um, Todd, do you, do you have a little more um, experience in this? Maybe you can help explain better what Cody's talking about. Yeah, so the article was essentially how to use Kendo UI in uh, the jQuery in React. So it's it's kind of a, a tough one because it comes from the sort of imperative side of things where you've got like a, a jQuery plugin and you then have to kind of turn it into a declarative side by something like React components. And if you think about the first jQuery plugin that comes to your head, you've probably used and know quite well. It's probably got like a lot of options that allow it to be customizable. Like take like an image slider, for example, um, or a date picker. You can have like restrictions on dates that you can choose. You can have tons of configuration options. And this is quite difficult to translate into something that's like a, like React. It's like a data-driven view framework. Um, which you use declarative components. So you end up creating, or trying to translate these configurations across to something like React, it, it ends up quite difficult. And Cody's done a really nice job on into implementing like the React lifecycle hooks for when components mount and properties up, props update, um, for when new data comes in and sort of tying those in so that the component is essentially fully in sync uh, with changes that come from React. Yeah, and it looks like he's using a wrapper that is suitable for any Kendo UI component. Where I think what his article says is, if you you know you tried to uh, write a wrapper for each component, you know you'd fail pretty quickly. So he came up with one that was usable across the board. Yeah, he he did. Uh, he so he he shares that and he shows how to implement it for a couple of. Of components but basically gives you the kind of like the recipe for for t using that on any other any other Kendo UI components that you may want to use. 
And so I think the benefits of this might be fairly obvious. So you can use something that already exists, uh, Kendo UI that's very powerful, has uh, 70 plus UI controls, uh, a great um, client-side API uh, in an existing application that's using React. Uh, what are some of the more negative sides to this? Like, are there some benefits that we're not going to be able to get from React? Like, uh, the virtual DOM, is that going to be fully implemented with an approach like this? Um, my experience that deep into React, I would probably guess no. However, it, it, I'm not 100% sure. Um, for... I'm not sure how it would work as well with something like server-side rendering. So I don't know whether you'd be able to server-side render it because React uses, um, it essentially um, does something similar to what Angular 2 does. So React is like the core engine and we also have React DOM. So the two are completely separate. And React DOM allows you to then use something like JSX um, where you can um, essentially compile the, the JSX and which would then be able to render on a server whereas I don't think something like a jQuery plugin it's it doesn't generate that code for you it essentially just hooks into the code that the plugin for in, for instance would generate so that that's a that's one downside so if you had like a, a huge grid or a spreadsheet or something like this that you wanted to server-side render um, then that might be like an issue um, there's also the dependency on jQuery, which it's not a huge library, um, and you can do things like tree shaking to or minification to actually remove uh, some of the jQuery dependencies, or you can create a custom bundle, for example, uh, to try and minimize the jQuery footprint. And there's obviously the overhead with jQuery is uh, it's a DOM library, so it's not a data driven. UI framework uh, or UI library like React is the view layer in a sense. So the, the two are completely different. So it, it's kind of murky waters on mixing the two. Yeah, I think the real beneficial point to this would be if you're you're definitely going to use React on an application in the near future and you want to get started today and you plan on migrating from Kendo UI uh, with jQuery to Kendo UI using React uh, when the React components for Kendo UI finally come out. Um, we're, uh, Progress is working on native Kendo UI uh, for React uh, that will, every uh, widget will be a React component. Uh, so this is a path, I think, to get you there and, and ready for those components when they're finally released. Yeah, and I think if you're doing um, like a an upgrade to Angular 2 or React, or for example, then if you're used to a certain framework or a library such as jQuery and the plugin ecosystem, then like every every app, it's not perfect. There's no single app that is a model application. So you have to you make trade-offs and you, you might have a hacky piece over here and another hack here just to, just to do what you actually want. So, um, and if your team, is, I mean, it's at the end of the day, it comes down to delivering something and productivity. And if, for example, you can cope with an extra 30 kilobytes of jQuery load and you want to just wrap the components that you're used to 
you want to be productive, then there's no harm in that. Right, and I think he makes the point that for certain things, there's um, there's not necessarily a better alternative out there, right? So it's not like you can say, okay, I'm going to use these other uh, UI components for React that would be a better alternative than, than can do UI. So you're left with, okay, I can rack the existing ones or... Or, you know, you you have an imperfect solution either way, right, is what I'm saying. Yeah, and the the time to, I mean, if, you, if you've just moved to React, then it's very likely, unless you've hired perhaps some senior React engineers to kind of guide you, then it's very likely that your first React application isn't actually going to be spot on. Like It's not going to be 10 out of 10. It might be 3 or 4 out of 10 from a re code review basis. Um, so to go ahead and start writing your own React implementation of, for example, Kendo widgets or uh, the plugins for the jQuery, you could risk, for example, let's say if you wanted to recreate the spreadsheet in React and you, you've done some React courses online, you've done Hello World and started to build your first app, it's probably not a wise idea to actually start doing that yet. So whether it takes you six months and you're super confident with React uh, and then want to start writing your own components, so you could you could you could do that perfectly. Um, but I think it's it's key to have that experience and fully know what you're doing um, to sort of gain the benefits of writing like a pure React implementation. Definitely. And uh, let's go ahead and change gears a little bit. We have another article that uh, was on the newsletter this month, and it was about uh, choosing between native script or a hybrid application. And we did uh, another TDE Slack chat, or um, what else were these called, Brian? You had a name for it last time. We, we tried to explain how this, how this type of uh, content gets created. I would basically, you know, they, we have we organize the chat with a whole bunch of people and just put up the the um, blanking on what you call it, you know, we put up the transcript basically at the end of the chat. So it's just it's just a Slack chat where we discuss a bunch of topics, uh, pose a number of questions, and ask people to answer, and then post up the the transcript of the chat. So it makes a good way to get multiple different viewpoints from different people in on a topic. Yeah, for example, in this Slack chat, we had uh, at least eight uh, of our Telerik developer experts in there uh, talking about the pros and cons of native script versus a hybrid application. And uh, there, there was some really interesting points of view in there. Uh, we've got a pretty diverse skill set of... Uh, developer experts that have worked with both native and hybrid applications um, and other types of de uh, software development as well. Uh, so there's there's a lot of perspective, a wide range of views anyway, uh, going on that, in that conversation. I heard once you uh, go native that you never go back. I heard the... Uh, that's where it's at. That's where uh, a lot of people were headed uh, because there's a lot more money in the game. Uh, people in the, the Slack chat were saying, um, uh, once you go native, it's uh, 
that's where you stay because of uh, in-app purchases and uh, that's where the money is going to be made. Yeah, and I think you get like a, a better UI. And for example, if you use something like NativeScript um, and you're an Angular 2 developer, you can just write pure Angular 2 and then where you would create a component and do at component and declare your template, you can simply just swap out the actual template with NativeScript's components. So instead of doing divs and all this stuff, you can use stack layouts and other other features that um, you can bind to in NativeScript. And just all you're doing is literally swapping out your template and you can reuse 90 plus percent of your code base. Um, and you built a, a mobile app that's completely native without with well with little extra effort yeah I think the one thing that that they did mention from a hybrid standpoint is that it, it takes a lot less initial there's there's less of a learning curve on that side if you're just a web developer at this point right yeah um, for sure because you you don't have to build you know you build the UI the way you've been building the UI for the web um, you don't have to learn. There's nothing really new to learn. Whereas if you do make that transition to NativeScript, obviously you get those benefits of performance and native native UI and so on. Even as you mentioned, being able to share across Angular um, and you know and in your mobile web and mobile app. But but there is a learning curve involved there. Um, but you know and keeping in mind that this was a group of of Telerik developer experts, so you know, perhaps the opinion is a little, a little biased, <laughs> um, but you know, you could tell a lot, number of them had backgrounds in hybrid, and and even though they did talk about certain of the benefits of hybrid, I think pretty much across the board, everybody was like, yeah, but you know, I would, I wouldn't necessarily do that today because once once they became comfortable in NativeScript, they didn't want to go back to hybrid. Um, it was easy enough to go ahead and just build the app in NativeScript and get those benefits without um, without the drawbacks that hybrid may have. Yeah, I think we're seeing a shift. Um, hybrid has done its job at being that bridge to kind of bridge the gap uh, between web and, and native for the meantime. But there's you know a lot of technologies like NativeScript uh, being one of them that's uh, giving developers with uh, a skill set like uh, for the web example, or for example, the web and um, letting them build native applications using something they already know, uh, which was the one of the prime reasons people used hybrid applications was because it was web friendly. Uh, so now that there's something web friendly that they can use to build native applications, it's kind of uh, time to cross that bridge and get to the other side. Yeah, and I think it probably was because hybrid kind of came first. Whereas let's say we were building web apps and all of a sudden native script or react native popped along. Nobody would probably consider, oh, let's build a hybrid instead. Like, I don't think it would have gone that way. Um, and I think there was a ask me anything AMA on Reddit mm -hmm. a while ago, um, with the react native team. And they were sent, they, they recognized that compiling down to native is extremely uh, powerful so they had a lot of questions and one of the takeaways from that um, one of the I can't remember the, his name uh, but the one of the team members said that 
um, well, one of the questions was, what is the plan? Is the plan for React Native to to change the landscape of how we build mobile apps? And he was just completely, yeah. Um, so I think that as an industry, we recognise that there are some benefits to compiling down to native, uh, and of of course, with every some, I mean, it's 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 something complex. <laughs> it's not going to be easy to learn. Um, nothing's easy to learn in in the web world. Um, <laughs> But if you invest your time in, in things, then whether it whether you're a React developer that wants to use React Native, um, or you're an Angular 2 developer that wants to use um, NativeScript, um, so that kind of completes the whole circular story. And I'm not sure if there's like a, I think there is a, an Ionic for React, um, but I don't think it's like an official supported version. I think it's like an open source contribution that somebody did. Yeah, I think this is going to be one of those evolutionary things where uh, native is going to be accessible to more people now. So that's going to be the chosen path for people. So it's a it's a good conversation to have. Uh, it's uh, great that we were able to have it and post it for people uh, to read and learn more about the two technologies and which path they should choose. Uh, the next uh, thing we have up is um, a .NET article. I know the company that I'm I'm in here may not uh, have too much to say about .NET, um, so I will take this one on, and um, you guys feel free to chime in as needed. Uh, the The title of the article was "Compile Changes on the Fly with .NET Core Watch," and this was an article by John Hilton, and he's talking about a new feature in ASP.NET or uh, .NET Core, uh, where they've added a CLI and now they've added a watch command for it. So if you're just strictly a .NET developer, you may not have had experience with uh, a watch command. Um, and in the present company, you guys might think that's kind of odd, right? That uh, people might not know what a watch command is. This is something you see and all sorts of other technologies like uh, NativeScript, CLI, or Jekyll, or other ones where um, you're, you're using a constant build and deploy process where you want to write code and you want this watch mechanism to go out and analyze changes that you've saved on the project and then recompile or rebuild the project and redisplay it so you can... Uh, build it in real time and debug in real time, and uh, it's it's something that if you're you're building like a native script uh, application, for example, you wouldn't want to do without. So uh, I guess we could compare these to to other types of tech. Um, what what type of watch tools do you use, uh, Todd? Loads. <laughs> um, well, in JavaScript, we've got like watches, so we can natively watch like JavaScript objects and stuff like this. Uh, Angular 1 and 2 make that pretty simple, like observables or scope.watch in Angular 1. Uh, but there's also stuff um, that I, I built, like a build process uh, with NPM scripts and Gulp and whatever um, for ng-migrate. So if you clone the repo uh, and install it, you usually it's... Uh, and Brian, uh, he loves Jekyll as well. So usually you run <laughs> Jekyll serve. So I essentially like wrapped the Jekyll um, alongside like JavaScript tooling. So I, I watch particular files and then rebuild the Jekyll project 
uh, when I need to. So stuff like this, it, it really helps. And, and you get instant live reloads and you don't have to recompile, you don't have to switch off the server, you just you just type npm start and bang, it's done until you've finished what you're doing. Yeah, Brian, what would Jekyll be without a watch command? Oh, geez, it's any kind of static site development would be a pain without a watch command. So, um, you know, and that's one that I use pretty pretty often. Um, you know, I I can't. I'm glad that .NET developers have this option. One one curiosity, it doesn't talk talk about whether because there are you know kind of different types of watches. Some of them are more dumb, like just a directory watch, and if anything changes, I recompile everything. Um, or there are some more kind of smarter things that will watch and only say necessarily recompile the pieces that need to be recompiled and things like that. Is this is this more like the just a flat out directory watch, or is this something that's smarter where it will determine what what it needs to do based on what changes were made? So based on my experience of .NET, I would say that the compiler actually does that work for you. So if there's a change that's just a you know a diff on one file or something, it's only going to recompile what's necessary uh, to get the the um, the DLL file built and back up and running. Uh, so if you get a brand new project that you've never built before in .NET and compile it, it's going to go through everything and compile, and it could take depending on how large the project is, it could take. Uh, quite a while, but if you make one change to just a single file uh, that that's part of a small library in that entire project, uh, the compiler will see that it doesn't need to build everything again. So it only it only build what it needs to build. Uh, so I don't think you're going to need to tell it through the command line uh, in that great of uh, detail what to do. Um, I did notice there were some command line options though for. Uh, whether you wanted to just build the application or serve it, uh, and then you could specify ports and things like that. And uh, another thing I noticed that was odd about the, um, not that everything is odd about it, but this one thing that, that I noticed was odd about the watch command um, is the way that it's written on the command line is a bit different from uh, your usual web tools or native script CLI. And that is when when you type it in the command line, you type .NET watch, and then the command like serve or build, instead of the other way around where you're normally typing like Jekyll uh, serve and then dash watch. So it it's actually swapped around the other way. So it's .NET watch and then any other commands follow it. So little little catch in there if you're using a bunch of watch commands and other things. Uh, you might, uh, you know, get that, uh, what do you call it, muscle memory, <laughs> where you're you're typing the watch command after the actual command you want it to watch rather than before. Yeah, definitely. You know, um, I, there was some tools I've used, speaking of like the static site generators, where the, the watch command was, you know, it's useful, but as I was saying, it was dumb, and it would, you'd sit there, and as soon as you'd, you'd make a change, even if it was trivial, it would load and load and load. Um, so it would run through a very kind of slow build process. Whereas, you know, it's great tools like Jekyll, for instance, you know, you don't even notice the build process going on in the background. So it feels immediate. 
Yeah, the the new Rosalind compiler that uh, Microsoft is shipping is actually really fast. Uh, it actually holds the project in memory and does all the compilation in memory. So you're not waiting for this uh, thing to go through and read a bunch of files. And it's a, it's really snappy. Uh, they've done a good job at uh, retooling their compiler. And um, it's it's been re- really useful so far uh, in my experience. So good stuff cool. coming for .NET. And I'm sure they'll, they'll keep adding to this. They're, um, they're making quite the uh, effort to add lots of new command line tooling and uh, get all different types of development ecosystems into the the uh, .NET ecosystem. So they're, they're going after the Linux and Mac developers and Windows developers that, that want to use CLI, which there's a lot of them out there now because of uh, some of the other things we talked about, like Jekyll and uh, SAS watches and all of these, these front-end development tools. Awesome. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap up the show, guys. I really appreciate uh, both of you uh, coming on and doing the Telerik Developer Digest show with me. Uh, it's great to have you both. Hey, before we go, though, we, you did not give Todd a chance to do his Ed Charbonneau impression. Todd. Todd, <laughs> go ahead and close. Ed Todd, close out the show. <laughs> this is the Telerik Podcast. I'm your host, Ed Charbonneau. <laughs> All right. right. Thanks, guys. uh, Good job, Todd. (laughs) Thanks, Todd, for uh, being on the show and uh, great impression. We'll be back next week with uh, an interview, and then another week we'll go for we'll we'll have a uh, another Teller Developer Digest. So we'll do these every other week. Still, Uh, we've got some good interviews coming, and uh, I think I have a special episode of the podcast in the queue as well so good stuff uh keep keeps um keep subscribed at soundcloud or itunes and if you like us give us some stars try to get some more uh people to listen we could always use more listeners and uh you can catch the uh, Telerik developer digest newsletter at developer.telerik.com and just scroll down the right hand sidebar you'll see a link to the newsletter there you can also subscribe and get that right to your inbox uh, so you don't have to hunt for it each week thanks everybody bye thanks guys